We have, like I said, had an incredible season, but we are starting something new today. Very, very new. Now, i got to tell you something before we get there uh, that was very fun from uh, our Christmas experience with two little kids. You know, Christmas is fun with little kids sometimes. The, <laughs> so our kids got iPads, little iPads that they can play games with for Christmas. This is the first kind of electronic thing that they've received right from us. And so uh, it's been very interesting watching them because they really, really like them. Well, Caleb, my oldest son, got punished and got his iPad taken away from him. So they very smartly, I know, Didi, it's a shocker, but they very smartly figured out and constructed this workaround, Daddy, right, where Olivia can have her iPad and then she can be the controller of whether Caleb plays hers or not, which Olivia loves very much being able to do that. And so it's kind of funny. So when I discovered this, it made me think back about a Christmas memory from my own childhood. It was in the fall, right before the holiday season really kicked off. And we used to have this thing called a console TV. Anybody remember those? Okay, a console TV was a piece of furniture with a TV in it, for those of you who are new and don't know. We did not hang TVs on our wall. In fact, that would have been impossible with this thing. It was a behemoth. It was probably seven feet wide. The TV was built into it. It was sturdy, and you could not move the thing, right? So our console TV went out. It went out. It went on the fritz. That was a bad thing to happen, I thought. Uh, Now, actually, it was the perfect timing, though, because for Christmas, one of our family members bought us the newfangled TV, right? The colored TV. And this time, automation replaced me as the baby of a family because this thing came with the remote and that was my job before so on the console tv i would sit on the couch and my mom would say go turn that channel no turn it again no turn it again now turn it down now turn it up i mean i wore a path between the sofa and the tv because i was the remote control right So anyway, we got that console TV replaced with a new TV with a remote control, and it was the new thing in the house. And now, with two sisters and a brother, how do you think that worked out? We had one new, really awesome, cool thing, and we had to share and decide how we were going to manage that tension. And that is a great way for us to kind of think about our new worship series. It's called Fixed and Free. And so we're going to begin this series by talking about some very hot-button issues within the denomination of the United Methodist Church regarding human sexuality. Now, as some of you know, the global United Methodist Church will be holding a special session of its general conference next year to hear a report from the Council of Bishops that deals specifically with the fact that churches across the world in our denomination hold different views on human sexuality. Many of these churches um, hold views that are also not in line with the Book of Discipline, which clearly states that homosexuality is not compatible with Christian teaching. That's the verbiage in the Book of Discipline. Now, let me add to that tension there. There is also geographically a a spectrum that you can kind of see as well. 
with the most conservative congregations represented in Africa, and then more liberal congregations as you kind of migrate west uh, to where we are and beyond. Even locally within United Methodist churches, you'll see a vast spectrum of denominational belief on human sexuality. Therefore, the United Methodist Church actually faces a schism, possibly, over human sexuality that could have a, us navigating a split. It could require that we navigate a split. It could happen. But we're not necessarily there yet. It is very important, though, as we kind of come up to that time, that we as a church understand who we are and what our position is in order for us to take these next steps together. So for the next month, we're going to be talking about unity. Fixed and Free is a sermon series about unity. And more specifically, our plans as Lovers Lane United Methodist Church to lead along other uh, congregations a common goal of uniting Methodist across the denomination. We are, after all, called United Methodist Church. So our vision is to set as big a table as possible, as big a table as possible, as demonstrated by the holy triune God of the Bible, of the Bible. To love all people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Okay. But all, friends, is challenging. So let's be real about that. All is challenging. But we can do it. We can do it. So to get us started today, we're going to look at two places of worship from the Old Testament. Now, there are some similarities in these places of worship, and there are also some differences. And I'm going to try to briefly explain a little bit of that as we discuss the tabernacle and the temple. Okay? Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is true. Pour your Holy Spirit out into us. Put it in our hearts. Breathe a fresh work into our lungs and into our lives this morning as we Strive to become disciples at your feet through your holy word. Help us to hear each other and most of all to love each other into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Tabernacle and temple. Well, both words do describe a place of worship, particularly worship of the God of Israel from the Hebrew Bible, which is the Old Testament. Now, before these places of worship existed, God's people constructed handmade altars all across the land. And, and that is where uh, they would pray to God. But the pagans would also construct altars and they would pray to gods, little g gods. Okay, you can read about these kinds of altars in the stories of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Job, among others. There were, there were all of these uh, altars, and then there was a lot of talk about idolatry and all of these different things, about these places where uh, people worship. In the time of Moses, though, God tells Moses and the Israelites... God, who freed them from bondage, from the, uh, uh, the, the Egyptian Pharaoh, 
freed them, put them through the Red Sea and delivered them from that bondage into the wilderness. He instruct, God instructed them to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle. And in Exodus 25, we read about all of the specifics of this tabernacle, what God is calling them to use and to, and to uh, include as they construct this tabernacle and to make up this like sanctuary, right? And I could spend several weeks in just a series about that alone. I mean, to really unpack it, it's very dense. But for today, what we need to do is get to the bottom line, the reason that God asks Moses and the Israelites to make a tabernacle. And it's stated explicitly in Exodus 25, 8. Here's what the word says. Have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. That's what I want you to take away here. Have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. I want you to leave that scripture up, Jake, if you would. It is God's instruction to God's people so that God may be with them, connecting with them in a relationship. Kind of sounds like our mission statement, right? And it's certainly worth noting that this is solely addressing the Jewish people at the time, right? They're the original Israelites. And so the tabernacle is cool. It's, it's kind of like a tent. And, it, and one of the neat features of the tabernacle is it's mobile. And so they can deconstruct this thing, take it, relocate it, and then construct it again. And there is the place which God has called them to build to dwell with them. Now, this is a fascinating part of Scripture. And I hope that you will visit it and revisit it again as we go through this series. But for now, just remember that this is God's way of connecting and uniting with God's people. It was also their centralized place of worship. Now, fast forward now a little bit, several hundred years to the time of King David. When God gives another instruction for God's people to build a place of worship with the same aim of connecting with them and centralizing their place of worship. But God instructs them this time not to build a tabernacle, but to build a temple. A temple. Now David, whom God describes as a man after God's own heart, messes up. Now if you don't know that story, you should read it. Man, it has all the makings of like a, one of those novels, like a best-selling novel. It really is kind of scandalous and wild. However... David doesn't get to build the temple, but guess who does? His son Solomon, that's right. One of the wisest people who has ever lived is told to build this temple. Now, there are some significant differences, though, in this temple, and I want to draw those out before we get into any more of this conversation. And one of them is about the construction versus that original uh, tabernacle. For instance, this temple is fixed. It's permanent, kind of like this structure, like the, like the structure of our campus here at LLUMC. So it would have had grounds and courtyards, and it would have um, a building with like a coffee shop like the Spire, right? If that's what they drank, I don't even know. Maybe they had some camel parking and stuff out in the, out in the lot. But this time, Israel isn't wandering anymore, and God doesn't only use Israelites this time to construct it. In fact, God tells Solomon to include pagan builders this time. Now make note of that. Make note of that. Because the table starts getting expanded 
It gets wider. And the guest list here at the temple starts. And, and, and this is important because it's foreshadowing for the Gentile mission later when the Jews are required and stretched to include the Gentiles. It actually starts here, right in the Old Testament. But for today, I want you to hear from God's own mouth why God has them build the fixed temple from that narrative in 1 Kings. And this is in 1 Kings 6. I'm going to be reading verse 13. And here's what God says why. I'll personally take up my residence among the Israelites. I won't desert my people. I won't desert my people. You see, God echoes God's desire for a place of connection and relationship with God's created beings. All the way from the time of all of these tabernacles and temples. And it gives us the sense of what we're going to be talking about as we talk about what it means to be fixed and free. Okay, so that's where that's coming from. Now, back to today and our navigating of the road ahead on the church's stance on issues relating to human sexuality and our, visit, and our, our vision for uniting Methodists. I would argue that it boils down to a real simple question. A really simple question. A question that since the time of altars and tabernacles and temples that the children of God have been grappling with. And it's this question here. Who possesses God? Who possesses God? It has been the center, friends, of so many, so many debates. It's the primary reason that we have hundreds of denominations in this world that make up the church, that make up the universal church. You ask Baptists and they'll say, we do. You ask Anglicans and they'll say, no, we do. You ask Assemblies of God or Catholics or anybody else and they'll say, no, we do. We do. We possess the right way to connect with God. And within these denominations, friends, we all know that there are a whole bunch of subcategories, right? Lots of them, fundamental and American and, and reformed and so on and, and so on. Now, within our own denomination, there are a whole bunch of subcategories. There are the Wesleyans and the Free Methodists and the AME Church. There's, there's, there, it goes on and on. And each one of them has a unique say and a unique voice that needs to be heard. Right? Needs to be heard. So let's explore this a little this morning. What are some reasonable responses to the question, who possesses God? Well, one of my friends said this. There are those who will say that we do not possess God that God actually possesses us. Hmm? This seems like a reasonable argument, at least a, a reasonable thought, that we are God's handiwork, right? That because God made us, God owns us. For instance, if you make a child, that child is yours, right? You're responsible for that child. Now, this doesn't just mean the physical body, right? That's kind of like slavery. That, no, it, it means something different. God showed us in both the tabernacle and the temple, that God desires a deeper, more tender relationship with each of God's people. And so nothing is more pleasing to God than when God's own love, just like we celebrated at Advent, when God's own love falls down from heaven, falls down from heaven, and wraps its way into our heart. 
and it weaves in there, and it soaks into it. We celebrated it all last month. We saw how God unites us and, and God's own heart by letting down the baby Jesus Christ into the manger and then rejoicing in our action as we receive him. All we have to do is wrap Jesus around our hearts and then heaven breaks out into celebration. Glory in the highest. Glory to God. <laughs> but there's a problem. There is a problem and there's been a problem and it's called out in the Pharisees in the New Testament and it's called out time after time. There are people and churches who claim to have a special relationship to the Lord. But in reality, what they have or may have is a condition of the heart and we need to be sensitive. We need to be sensitive to it. Let me tell you, loving all is hard. Amen? Now, they value these people that I'm talking about more than anything else, their place in, in God's own heart. But not because of anything other than their being possessed by God is an insult to someone who they claim is not possessed by God. In other words, when your motivation for belonging to God is that your belonging insults someone who you claim doesn't belong to God, that, in my opinion, is a broken heart that does not know the capacity of God to love all people. You show me one person that God did not make. You show me one. There aren't any. And I believe with all my heart that God loves all people. But that fact doesn't let us off the hook either, does it? No. We must understand that our response to God's love is a key, a really important one. Yes, God loves all. That's true. But God also loves righteousness. So it creates a little bit of a tension. And therefore, as we increase our capacity for righteousness, we grow nearer to God. Not in a way where one person is better than the other, though. That's what we must understand. Not at all. But in a way where there is this embracing of mutual love, which grows us in a relationship in a deeper place. Amen? There are times when I look at my wife and I think to myself, I absolutely couldn't love her any more than I do right now in this moment. But you know what happens is that time proves me wrong. The way that she defends me, the way that she shows respect to me and my children, how she savors her first cup of coffee in the morning. Over the years, she just gets more and more attractive to me. I'm serious. She really does. Our relationship with God, friends, is the same way. Over the years of being a Christian, the way that God defends me and acts as a refuge for me, day after day, the respect that I watch God show the whole world, <sighs> the way that God savors each and every one of us who comes to God. Mm. We don't deserve it. 
And yet God does it. It really is the greatest love. And friends, it just keeps getting better and better. Is it that way for you too? Is it? That kind of deep love, though, it makes you wonder, why me? Why me? Why would God, the creator of the entire universe, love us? It's a question that has been on the hearts of humanity for as long as we can remember. The psalmist in chapter 8 cries out to God, Oh Lord, who are we humans that you, God, that you, God, would be mindful of us? Why, God, would you care for us? And God answers by making more of us. (laughs) By making more of us. Just like God made heaven and earth all those years ago. Therefore, we belong to God, but friends... It doesn't just stop there. And we struggle to understand that idea that because we belong to God, God gives God's self to us. God also belongs to us. And so here's what I think happens. Instead of rejoicing in that, we fight over it. We're like the people who want the new thing that we have to share. We fight over it. We want to be right, too, more than we want to be righteous. That becomes a problem. And in our condemnation of others, we miss the fact that God came not to condemn us, but to save us, to rescue us. So as we explore over these next weeks ahead of what it means to be fixed and free, And as we advocate for a both-and position instead of an either-or, we aim to set the widest table, to set the widest table in uniting Methodists. Sometimes the Bible authors refer to Israel as God's bride. Sometimes it refers to us as God's child. Sometimes God's possession. Each description, though, acknowledges God's wooing and winning of our hearts in a relationship. And God knows that in order for us to give ourselves fully to God, God must give God's self to us. Therefore, we do possess God. But the centerpiece of this sermon series still remains who possesses God. Now, this is a stone. It's a stone from the ruins where Jesus preached sermons in the synagogue and said things like, I am the bread of life. That's life-giving. It's also the same stones that the people there would take and they would throw at each other and stone each other dead in the streets we got to figure out because it impacts this it impacts the table and I want you to think about it this way people who don't identify in human sexuality the way that I do taking them off the table 
Well, let's don't stop there. Let's throw some more stones. People who are overweight. <laughs> it's gluttonous. Let's take them off the table too. What else is there? Divorce? People who are divorced. <laughs> let's just take them off the table too. <laughs> what else? People who lie, steal, cheat. <laughs> you want to shrink the table? I just can't. And I don't believe that God in Jesus spends God's ministry doing that either. God says, all you who are weary, come and I will give you rest. God says, I come to save the world. For those who believe in me, wrap me around their hearts. God says, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to forgive you. Even though you hung me on a cross. So we can throw our stones. Or we can drop them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Gracious God, Lord, move in our hearts, Help us to expand the table and the tent to as many people and help us to keep our eye on the prize, which is Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. You've challenged this church with a difficult mission. Loving all, it's hard. We strive in it. But God, I don't want to throw stones. I don't want to be hit by any either. Will you show us how to love like you do? God, we thank you for your word. Help us walk together. Help us to unite with our brothers and sisters. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, who gave himself for us. Amen.